I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Andy Rowe Show. At the height of his power, drug trafficker Pablo Escobar was making the equivalent of $55 billion a year in today's money. His cartel spent over $1,000 a week just on rubber bands to wrap around the cash they're making. You're going to hear the true story from the real-life stars of the hit Netflix series Narcos. DEA agents Javier Pena and Steve Murphy are going to give you all the details on how Pablo Escobar was eventually brought to justice. I hope you enjoy the episode. Manscaped are on board as a sponsor for this week's podcast and giving you the opportunity for a fresh, clean start to 2022. They're the leader in men's below-the-waist grooming, and they've served more than 4 million men worldwide. Get onto their website, manscaped.com, and get yourself the lawnmower body trimmer, or get yourself the performance package 4.0, which includes the lawnmower, as well as some Manscaped boxes and the shed travel bag. And make sure you use the code ARS20 to get 20% off and free shipping. Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Andy, for having us. Yeah, appreciate it, Andy. Let's work our way up to Pablo Escobar because it's the, it's the guy that everyone loves talking about. But let's start on how we got there because, Javier, you started your career pretty much working on death row, didn't you? Yes, yes. I, I got there in uh, 1988 into Colombia. So how did you go from working on death row to working in the DEA in, in Colombia? Before, I was with the sheriff's office in uh, Laredo. I did seven years there, and then I applied for uh, DEA, and I got to Austin in 1984. And I was there uh, four years in Austin, Texas, working. And I, I did the basic you know, basic undercover, a lot of surveillances. I was a brand new agent, so I was learning. We were doing small amounts of dope. A lot of our dope heroin was coming from Mexico. And I always wanted to know what the big leagues were like, the big traffickers. So I applied for, uh, to go foreign. You just don't go foreign with DEA. You, you have to have served four years before. When I applied, I applied to, I applied to go to Mexico. And I always remember my boss came in and says, Javier, did you apply for Colombia? I said, no, sir. I applied for Mexico positions. He says, well, you got Colombia. <laughs> and I said, well, and, and he asked me, he says, Javier, you want to fight it? You know, we can uh, renege and uh, you go to Mexico. I said, nah, boss, you know what? Paperwork's done. I'll go to Colombia. So I got there in 1988. As soon as I get there, my boss at the time had been my boss in Austin, Texas, and he had been promoted. So he was a country at a shade. He was the number one guy. So he basically said, Javier, uh, we're assigning you with another senior partner as a lady, and you're going to be working the Pablo Escobar investigation. And I didn't know anything about Pablo Escobar. So I started 
learning and uh, all of a sudden it was like, wow, uh, <laughs> this guy is kind of a, a big guy. So I learned uh, right away who Pablo Escobar was. And Steve, have you done a fair bit of learning by the time you'd got there and kind of done a bit of groundwork, but you cut your teeth in Miami, didn't you? Was it was that as as gangster as the TV made it out to be? Like were the machine gun battles on the on the streets, like in the movies? You know what, Andy, it was. Um, and and what you see on TV is usually not what really happens in real life. But it was the violence was unbelievable there. The uh, deaths were, you know, it was almost a daily event where you're finding bodies in trunks of cars and in the river and just different things like that. So it was uh, very much real. You know, and then in 1989, we found out for sure how real it was for us when we were doing a small deal in Hialeah and my partner ends up getting shot twice and the informant was killed. Shit, was that like the first time that someone had been shot on on the beat with you as well? Like, was that, it must have been quite an eye-opener, to say the least. I'd been a cop for almost 12 years before I got to DEA, and I got on DEA in, in 87. So this, he was shot in 89, so I've got mm -hmm. about you know, 14 years on as a law enforcement officer, I had been in several shootings, but you know, none of the police officers had ever been hit. So this was the first time where, you know, we were right side by side when the shooting happened. And, and, uh, when your partners in law enforcement or military, or, you know, any occupation that ha is very hazardous partnerships are closer than brotherhood, believe it or not. So it's like, I mean, now we've been partners since 1991. We still talk to each other. When we're not traveling we usually talk to each other at least once a week on different things that are happening and i mean it just it really is uh, that law enforcement brotherhood thing is, is a true culture so when you go through these multiple life or death situations together and you both survive it's a lifelong friendship mm. you know it's it's, it's kind of hard to explain to be honest with you until you go through it who's the big brother out of you guys well, he is. He's older than me. What do you think? <laughs> By how many months? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a couple. It's not much. <laughs> how was it for you guys when you get put on uh, Pablo's case? I mean, and you start to learn a little bit about this guy and you work out how big his reach is and, and, and just how colossus, um, how much of an impact he's got on the drug world. Well, for me, you know, I was in Miami for four years before I went to Bogota and, and um, all the cases that I worked on there, the source of supply for the cocaine was the Medellin cartel and, and Pablo's the head of it. Now I never had a case where we got up to his level, but you know, through the informant information, the intelligence that you could glean, the research that you could do, the markings on the cocaine packages that we were seizing, you know, we could track all that back to the Medellin cartel. So I knew who Pablo was and actually I did a, a three month temporary duty assignment over in the Bahamas after my partner was shot in 89. And uh, I was reading the book Kings of Cocaine at that time. And there was a picture of Pablo in there as well as the Ochoa brothers and, and Rodriguez Gotcha and all those folks. And I got a call from our embassy in Nassau one day. They said, you know, we need, we need you guys to scramble out. We think there's a jet over on Treasure Key Island. It's a Mexican tail number. They gave me the, the tail number of the plane. They said, we think Pablo Escobar is on there. Do you know who he is? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do know. I don't know him well, but I know who you talk about. They said, do you know what he looks like? So, well, I have, I got this book here called the King's cocaine. And there's a picture of it. Take that with you. That's, that's going to be your visual identification mechanism, you know? So, wow. so I, I shot out to the airport and, and the Bahamian national police came out and we jumped on a coast guard, us coast guard helicopter. And we flew over treasure key and 
Um, you know, we came in on the wave tops I and mean, we came in low and, and over there, they don't have control towers, you know, on these small islands, they go up on a common radio channel and you announce your intentions. And so as, as we're almost ready to come up to the airstrip, the pilot comes on the emergency channel and announces, you know, everybody to clear, we're coming in. And as we come over the treetops to the landing strip on the taxiway is a jet taxiing out to line up for takeoff. His tail number is off by one number from the suspect tail number we're looking for. You know, the pilot's like, what do you want to do, Murph? And said, block the damn runway here. So and back then they were flying those huge Sikorsky helicopters. I mean, those things were big as a city block, you know, so he sets it down, blocks the runway and, and I get out with the two Bahamian cops and, and the Coasties are only allowed to protect themselves uh, and their passengers, you know, so it wasn't like they could get out with open weapons and so forth. The, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get the attention of the, the pilot. And he finally looks at us and, and I do this motion across my throat to cut your engines. Well, he revs his engines up and that's part of, you know, preparing to take off. You got to test your brakes and different things. So he revs his engines up and what he does, the two Bahamian cops go prone on the ground with their machine guns and point up to the cockpit. And I draw my nine millimeter out and point at him. And of course he, he cuts his engines then and we search the jet and Pablo's not on there. Oh dear. Well, then as we clear the runway, we go over to the, the uh, parking area for the planes. There's the exact tail number on a sister jet that we were looking for. Uh. So we went and interviewed everybody we could find, you know, and I used my book. You ever seen this guy? And to this day, we still haven't found Pablo Escobar on Treasure Key. Oh, no. <laughs> Just a funny story. Yeah, so close. Did you guys have many occasions like that where you got really close to Pablo or you just missed him? Because in the Netflix series, it shows you just turning up to his house and he just left. But did you have any occasions like that where you right on him and he got away? Oh, yeah. There are many occasions when, especially... Uh, when the second search after the escape from his country club setting, we had every day because he was running, he wasn't organized, he was talking on his radio telephone, and we had a lot of intelligence operatives that would identify his location. So we would barely miss him. I mean, there are numerous occasions where we would go in, the, the coffee was still hot that he was drinking. Towards the end, he would always have a Coke and a young girl with him. So we would always interview him. And they were like, yep, he, he saw that y'all were coming. He heard you were coming. He was notified by people that y'all were coming. So you barely missed him. In, in Colombia, because it's it's a beautiful country, it's very lush. So the jungles, the the, the mountains, it would be very hard uh, to capture someone. And he would always hear the helicopters coming. Because he also had a lot of the police on the books when you guys first arrived, didn't they? Well, you know, because Javier had been there three years before me, he had already developed a working relationship with this specialized unit called Dehine with the Colombian National Police. But when I got to Columbia, I thought the same thing you just said there, you know, the only Colombians I'd ever met were the ones I put in jail. So I'm thinking the whole police department and the whole country's corrupt. You know, they're all drug traffickers, which was really stupid on my part. And I was really, really concerned about police corruption down there. Who can you trust? And I would talk to Javier. When I first got there, he was partnered up with another guy named Gary Sheridan and Gary ended up getting promoted and, and moved up to Barranquilla. Uh, but that was a concern of mine. And I'm talking to these guys they are like, no, it's, it's really not as bad as you think it is. And I think in my three years there, there was only maybe 
three instances where we ran into corruption, three or four. And I think three were very low ranking officers uh, that really were just making a phone call, you know, to warn people of, of pending actions by the police. And then after Escobar was killed, there was one of the, the majors that we worked with who, man, we, we lived with this guy. We trusted with our lives every day. And after Pablo's dead and things start to calm down, we found out he was one of the leaders of Los Pepes, the vigilante group. We trust him with our lives every day. And, and I can't say anything bad about him other than his association with them. He was always straight up with us, wasn't he, JP? Yeah, no, he, he was a great guy. In, in 88, when I get there, the problem, and we never realized it, is that when we were searching for him, we had people, police officers that were from Medellin, the city of Medellin. Mm -hmm. So Pablo Escobar, guess what he did, right? He got to their families and he threatened the families and he would tell the families, if I know your sons assigned to the search blog after me. If they're coming, I need a phone call. So tell your son, he needs to call y'all. You call me where they're coming, when, where. And, and that was the problem. We located, you know, a couple of, uh, uh, they were like lower ranking, you know, but they would make a call. And it was because, you know what, what are you going to do? If your mom calls you and says, hey, Pablo Escobar has paid us a visit and he's going to kill us if you don't let us know. So obviously it's a tough decision. Didn't he put a price on both of your heads? Yeah, he did. <laughs> what sort of money were you talking? Like that must have been. How did you and how did you find that out? Well, I, when I arrived in Colombia, you know, and again, Javier's been there for three years before I got there. That's one of the first things they told you, especially uh, once I was assigned to work with with Javier and, and Gary Sheridan. And uh, you know, they tell you it's three hundred thousand bucks. Initially, it's disconcerting. You know, it's like, what the heck did I get into down here? Mm. <laughs> you know, honestly, and this is going to sound really strange unless you've been in these situations you kind of get used to it and it's not something that you let you know play with your mind because it can freak you out uh, what i tell people now is probably the biggest threat i face from all that is my wife would kill me in my sleep because i was worth more dead than i was alive <laughs> <laughs> uh, javier didn't he find out where you lived though well that must have been even next level from like being put a bounty on your head you get used to that and then he finds out where you live <laughs> yeah, the first time that was kind of uh, an eye opener for me. I was in Bogota, and I get a call from my boss, and uh, he says, "Are you at your apartment?" Yep, and he was a great guy. He'd been uh, a boss in foreign situations. He was never a panicker, but <laughs> when he says, uh, "All right, Javier, don't panic. Just get your gun." He said, and get the hell out of your apartment real quick. Come into the embassy. We'll explain later, but there's like a hit squad coming in to go get you. <laughs> I laughed loud, you know, but I remember I got out of there real quick. Once I got to the embassy, it was a, it was a telephone intercept that they, were, they knew where I had lived. And there are some people going to pay me a visit. <laughs> so at that time, they just moved me. <laughs> they got me another apartment somewhere else. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, you'd think, you would think that they would send him home, right? Back to the yeah. U.S., yeah. but they just yeah. got him nah. another apartment. <laughs> yeah, they said, all right, be, it is, be careful. They gave me another gun. <laughs> Gosh. When you when you when you're working on this case, like one of your first big breakthroughs as far as like 
capturing or getting one of their uh, one of the members of the, the top dogs of the Medellin cartel was a guy called Carlos Lida, wasn't it? Uh, tell me a little bit about him and his sort of link with Pablo and 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 how you how you caught him. First of all, part part of Carlos Lader's plea agreement with the United States is that the U.S. would give his immediate family asylum here in the United States to avoid the violence and the potential retaliation, you know, by the by the Medellin cartel because. Carlos was testifying against some big people. Mm. I was given the assignment, and uh, so I met his wife, and his daughter at the time was a small girl, uh, and some other family members, and we put them in a safe house. And, um, you know, back then, this is pre-9-11, so you could make plane reservations and fake names, and you didn't have to change them until you got to the airport and that kind of thing. So we, um, you know, just protected them, made all the arrangements, got them to the airport in Bogota several days later, and they got to the United States safely. So that was my big, you know, to do with, with Carlos later while I was in Columbia, but it was funny. Several months later, I get a letter, uh, laid on my desk in the embassy and it's from the, a federal prison here in the United States, and I, you know, which is very, it was unusual for me. And I'd open it up and there's a handwritten letter letter from Carlos later to agent Murphy. Thanks. What you did for my country and my family CL. That must've been interesting getting that. Cause you, you just you did good let's not take that away from you but you got a thank you letter from a narcos it, it's very unusual in fact <laughs> right now at the mob museum in las vegas there's a uh, escobar display out there and uh, so however now we've got both our weapons are on display and our our badges and credentials from back then and some of the clothing we wore but also is that letter from carlos later it's on display at the mob museum right now he's the guy that <laughs> bought the island wasn't he he was those guys were like raking in some cash. I think there was a stat that I I read um, in your book, something about, was it 25 billion a year, the Midian cartel, which is almost 5 million a week. What was the craziest thing you saw bought with that money? Because those guys must have been running out of things to buy their money. Like <laughs> He's buying an island. Well, he, he bought a zoo, right? Yeah. He bought an exotic <laughs> animals. You know, who buys elephants? hippopotamus, giraffe. I mean, it was a beautiful zoo. I mean, the, the animals that he bought, I mean, how much did that cost him? <laughs> the, the price of cocaine, and, and I think Forbes magazine, and, and Steve says it best, where he was rated the seventh richest person in the world. So if you look at the money, and I'm glad you brought that up, it was that kilo in Miami was going for about 80,000, 200,000. You send it to Europe, at least 100,000 for one kilo. So if he was sending 2,500 kilos of cocaine on a daily basis, and we corroborated, we had studies done. So that kilo was netting him 100,000. So if you're doing 2,500, kilos on a daily basis, that money, it's coming back in millions. You know, we tell the story, we found the, the craziest thing I ever saw was a hole. It was a, it was a hole in the ground. When we uh, got into it, there was 10 tons of cocaine. There were about three, four other holes besides that. 40, 50 tons of coke, right? So if you see 100 kilos of cocaine in Miami, do you think that made a difference? Of course not, man. He's got, you know, all this surplus. He was the head, so he monopolized the prices. 
and Esquire loved cash at this time, you know, and we tell people there's still a lot of cash buried in Colombia right now. I don't think they're going to be able to find it. It's been washed away, stolen. The weather conditions have deteriorated, but uh, there's been shows that are been going down there trying to find the money and they, it still hasn't been found because all the people are dead. Pablo's dead and he would kill the caleteros. In other words, the guys who would hide the money, all of a sudden they'd be killed. That way nobody knew who, who where it was. Didn't Pablo, didn't he have hippos and stuff at his house as well? Oh, yeah. And he had like 800 houses as well, didn't he, or something like that? He did. The uh, And he'd kill all the architects that uh, that, yeah. that that made them for him. <laughs> yeah, and, and we laugh because we, you know, we do our show. We, we try to introduce some humor. And it's, I mean, it's just such a dark topic, you know, so you got to provide a little levity to yeah. lighten things up a little bit. And, that's one of the stories we tell about, you know, he did bring in and the architects were Italian architects. I mean, he liked really nice things, you know, it wasn't the local architect, but, uh, and every one of the houses that he built had a, a hidden Coletta, like, uh, Javier was talking about the, fo the hole in the ground with the 10 tons of Coke. And he, we actually show a picture of that 10 tons at these Colettas. What he would do is after everyone was built, he would kill the architects so that nobody, you know, nobody knew where those Colettas were. And, yeah. and the funny part of that is you know, we always well, we say, well, you'd think that the, you know, the architect association in Italy would, would eventually say, what's wrong here? You know, we sent Giuseppe over there and, and Luigi and Luigi, and uh, they haven't come back. What's going on over there? Why would anybody else want to go over there? Cause you never come back. All that money. Why didn't he ever just try and pay you guys off? Surely did he ever offer to pay you guys off? He offered to pay a lot of politicians, obviously, but that was, uh, but with us, we, you know what, we never uh, got a, you know, I, we're, we'll pay you. But because, you know, if you look at it, what authority does Steve and I have? Mm. I mean, we don't have any authority with the DEA mm -hmm. government. Remember, we're there as guests. He was trying to pay off. Remember, there was the old adage, he tried to pay off the Colombian debt if he was mm. become president of Colombia. But he did pay off politicians. I remember the bribes. Some police officers uh, were bribed. You know, at the beginning, I just remembered the story and I witnessed it. Uh, we got a colonel, full-fledged Colombian police colonel, transporting 400 kilos of cocaine in his police. Uh, it was like a, a Toyota Land Rover. And what he did, he was in uniform. And he had a driver, and when he got stopped, and he got stopped by our group, like Steve mentioned, the Heen guys, they said, Colonel, he said, hey, I'm on business, uh, I'm, I'm going to, he was going to the Barranquilla, and uh, they knew he had the, you know, for, yeah, 400 kilo just in the back of his truck. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously they arrested him, but how many incidents like that happened that we never caught? So he had the airlines. I, I always remember even the commercial airlines when I first get there. I think it was a it was American Airlines going to Miami. It was 800 kilos of cocaine in the baggage area and in boxes. I mean, the the moral of the story is these people are so used to sending cocaine in common ways until the pressure started getting caught. So how many loads like that left, mm. you know, uh, beforehand? The violence is 
you know, there's, there's the money side of it and then there's the violence is the other side of it. What was the most violent thing that you guys walked into, came across, saw? It, it was the, the, the car bombs. He was targeting just anybody in the public arena, you know, hitting care, women, children. You know, Steve and I, we put what, 10 to, the, we put the figure at 10 to 15,000 innocent people that he killed. And his Sicario, guy by the name of Popeye, we, I'm sure you've uh, read yeah. up on Popeye. He's, he's got more shows than us. <laughs> you know, we laugh, but he claims a figure is to 50,000 people. Shit. That was weird, wasn't it? Because he, he got out of jail and he started doing like tours and stuff around Medellin. He was like, he's a celebrity and he'd take people on tours and show them where he killed people. Yeah. You know, he was responsible for the deaths of a lot of police officers. And I saw some photographs here. It's been a couple of years ago now that I saw the photos on, on social media. And he, he had these tattoos on the, you know, on his forearms here. And he would take pictures and put one arm around people and then hold his tattoo up and his El Jefe de the Mafia, you know, the boss, the Mafia boss. And one of those pictures was with two young Colombian police officers. And I thought, man, if you only knew who he was and the history behind him, you'd never pose in a picture with the guy. That's a stone cold murderer. At, at the beginning, everybody, like I said, nobody would, would want to give information to Escobar. We had a lot of problems trying to get informants. Then towards people started realizing him, the, the bombing on the commercial airline, the bombing on a, uh, the DOS building, which another hundred people were killed, the indiscriminate car bombs. And I think we called it the straw that broke the camel's back is when he killed the next president of mm -hmm. Colombia, Luis Carlos mm -hmm. Golan. And in essence, he was running for president of Colombia under the auspices. His platform was, if I am elected Colombia, I am bringing back extradition. And at this time, People were tired of the traffickers, and he had a 95% backing. He was going to be the next president, and he ate at Escobar. And what happens? Pablo Escobar has him killed on a Friday night while on a stage campaigning. And that's when I think Columbia realized we're dealing with a madman. We got to do something about this guy. It was before then that he surrendered and went to prison though, isn't it? For people that have no idea about Pablo, Steve, would you be able to sort of give us a rundown of the prison, the the, the makeup of it and, and the situation that led him to being put in there? Absolutely. So the day after he or he escaped from his prison, Javier and I flew to Medellin and that's when we started our 18 month stint of living and working with the Columbia National Police, the search block up in Medellin. And that first day, we actually flew, flew over to the prison and, and all of our theories were confirmed that it wasn't a prison. It was more like a country club. You know, at the beginning of the front gate, where you, once you got in the gate and you came up to the front entrance of the prison, there were two sets of steel bars, you know, which are indicative of a prison environment. It's like a sally port type thing. But then once you got inside, there weren't any bars anywhere. The, the fence was a joke. You know, there was a big hole in the back fence where you could come and go as you pleased. Pablo's cell, uh, his prison cell was a two room suite that had, um, you know, hardwood floors. It had a side-by-side -side refrigerator, freezer, a, a microwave oven, 
uh, custom built cabinets and a, and a banana bar with bar stools. He had color coordinated draperies and upholstery on his couches and, you know, all the furniture in the living room. He had artwork hanging on the walls and, and not cheap artwork. He had a Salvador Dali original worth over $3 million hanging in the prison. He had a, a huge painting from a famous Colombian artist who's still alive, Fernando Botero. He had a Botero original hanging in the prison that, you know, we were told was worth over $1.5 million. You go in the second room, he's got this custom built bed that's larger than any king size bed you've ever seen in your life. He had an audio visual center because he didn't have, you know, didn't have cable TV, satellite TV and Netflix and that kind of stuff back then. Fireplace in there, an office with bookshelves. He had his own private bathroom with a jacuzzi tub. Now this is a prison, you know, most prisons have what we call group showers, right? <laughs> yeah, we didn't even have jacuzzi tubs in our apartments back in Bogota. He had a huge walk-in closet. You pull one of the shelves out, there was a safe hidden back in there, which we finally got it open. There was nothing in it. But then there's an area of the closet where, like my wife would say, that's where ladies would hang their long clothes, their dresses, nightgowns, and, and evening gowns and things like that. And on the back side, on the wall, there was a hidden button that Javier found. You open that, you push that button, and there's another hiding spot. We call it collect in Spanish. And it's just, a collect is just anywhere that, that you can hide or secrete things. And so that was a little hiding spot he had that he thought, well, you know, if the gringos come here to get me, I'll jump in here. If I can't escape from the room, then I'll jump in here and hide until they leave. We kind of jokingly say, but we're serious when we say it. We found that we're pretty sure we found his big ass in there. If, you know, if he'd have been in there when the time had come, but had a soccer field, professional grade soccer field with lighted, you know, for night play. And, you know, I've got four kids. None of my kids ever had lights on the soccer fields to play at nighttime. The other prisoners, they had two room suites, but they didn't have the jacuzzi tub. You know, they did have private bathrooms. He was building a series of cabanas and chalets on the backside of the prison. So that hole in that back fence, you go out there and there's all these cabanas and these are really nice. I mean, it was one of the things that wasn't completed when we were there was a log cabin, but we went up there and, and again, you saw the hardwood floors and the beautiful flowers that are, you know, are indicative of Columbia and they really are beautiful. Uh, but every one of those cabanas and chalets had an alternate escape route and so in our show we actually show one of them where you go into a bedroom you open the closet doors there's a, a little hole in the floor and you can put your finger in it pull the floor up and there's a hidden staircase that takes you under the house so you can escape out the back side of the house and go up in the mountains and get away he had an anti-aircraft gun on the grounds of the prison to shoot the good guys down if we came in to get him <laughs> it's just a joke Jesus. he had playground set up for his kids so when they would come to visit, they had a little yeah, playhouse. Like children would, yeah. Yeah. And it had running water and electricity in it. And you got to remember back at this time, Columbia is a beautiful place. And I don't mean any disrespect when I say this, but it was still close to being a third world country. There were lots of places in Columbia that we went to where they didn't have electricity and running water, but here he's got it down here in the little playhouse for his kids. When they come to visit, just a joke. I mean, it was just a lot of parties going on there a lot of sex toy, lingerie, letters written from uh, mothers offering their daughters. And that is, I'm, I'm serious when say that that is sick, you know, for money, of course, people from all over the world admiring him, telling him how much, you know, he, he's a hero. And, and so, so you get that attitude from all, uh, he's a Robin Hood and just people thanking him. I mean, 
thousands of letters that, that he was getting uh, from this type of people. To this day, he's still the richest criminal of all time. You know, Chapo, Chapo had a couple million dollars. He didn't even come close to what Pablo had. When he started dating his wife, Tata is her nickname. He was in his mid twenties. You know how old she was? 12. Fuck off. 12 years old. And Tata has written a book and, and I'm not promoting her book, but I did read it because we try to stay up on all this stuff. And she admits in her book that when she was 13 years old, she had an abortion. What kind of sick person wants to have sex with a 12 year old? I mean, they don't even have bumps and curves that, you know, women have. It's just so on top of the whole point here, on top of everything else, he's a pedophile. Oh my God. And, and in all the places when he was, like I said, on the run, there'd always be a young girl with him. There'd be a cook and there'd be a teenager girl uh, with him. What? And yeah. What can you say? What can you say about him? He's just, he's just a wrong in every, every area, isn't he? Yeah. While he's in prison, didn't he continue to run his operation? Of course. And that's what led to his escape from so-called prison. I mean, here's a guy who gets a five-year prison sentence in five years. You know that he, he was going to be out in two or three. He's been in his so-called prison for one year, right? One year. He's got four to go. And because of that ego, and he believed, Escobar, that two of his main lieutenants have stolen some money from him, which they, they had not. And that's what he brought him into the prison. He, he killed him because he thought he was stealing. And that's what led to the famous, we're going to take you to the real prison now, Mr. Escobar. And when the prison, the Colombian military officials came in, firefight, people are killed. Pablo Escobar walks out. Didn't he do some pretty brutal things to those guys that he beat up? Yeah, he, he did. They cut up the bodies. And then worse, he ordered hits on a lot of people in Medellin, a lot of, a lot of killings, a lot of bloodshed. And that's what led the Colombian government to finally say, enough, we're going to move you to another prison and obviously the famous uh, firefight and the famous escape. You mentioned how you went to the prison afterwards. Javier, you've got quite an interesting story about a night there. It was, a, you know, one of the, the colonels in charge of the, of the search of the prison, Colonel Arango, says, Javier, we'll bet you that you will not sleep in Pablo Escobar's bed. I forget what the bed was. So I said, you know what? I'll sleep in his bed. I changed the sheets, of course. I don't want to, you know, but the, 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 I didn't sleep a, a week that night. And, and you know what? Over the bed, and there's a beautiful picture of the Virgin Mary, and it's made in ceramic tile. I've never seen a, how they made it or how expensive that is, but I'm like, this guy's killing thousands of innocent people. And every night he goes to bed, and he's looking at the Virgin Mary. I'm sure he was saying some prayers of the Virgin to the Virgin Mary. But, you know, here you are, I don't know, praying to God and all on the other, the other thought, the other, you're, you're killing tons of people. About 5 a.m., I remember all the noise in the kitchen. They were making coffee for all the troops. <laughs> that was a weird night, you know, sleeping in Pablo Escobar's bed. Oh, I bet. <laughs> 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Pablo gets out. He escapes from the prison. The hunt restarts. You guys are back to square one. Steve, did you guys get much help from, like, what was your relationship like with CIA at this point trying to track them down? <laughs> well, that's, uh, if you've seen the Narco series, you know, it's not 100% accurate. Uh, it is a really good action series. We like this, the series a lot. But the one part that is, or one of the parts that is true is the strife between us and the CIA. Please don't accept this as an indictment of the entire CIA. It came down to their chief of station, the guy that was in charge there was just a horse's butt. You know, he didn't like us. We didn't particularly like him. He thought we were trying to encroach on their territory where, you know, and here's the difference, you know, we're law enforcement professionals. So we're trying to assist the Columbia National Police with capturing Pablo, but at the same time, we're looking to make prosecutable cases in the United States. So we're very concerned with evidence, the chain of custody, you know, potential witnesses, uh, especially physical evidence. Whereas their jurisdiction falls under the insurgent groups. They don't care about evidence. You know, that's not at all. That, that has no bearing on what they do whatsoever. You know, they're trying to fight, fight the um, insurgent or communist groups that have a negative impact on the United States. In my opinion, that's an admirable mission, uh, admirable mission for them to have. But, you know, their chief of station is he won't share any information with us. We finally had to get the ambassador involved. We had to get additional security clearances. And then when we, when Harvey and I would go up to the CIA uh, section in the embassy, when you walked in the door, they'd start these revolving lights that would flash to let everybody know that there's an outsider in their midst, you know, and people would shy away from us. They wouldn't talk from you. Just look at you as you walk by and, you know, I mean, really treat you like an outsider. And then for us to look at the information, they had this old time school desk. So the corner office was the chief of station and this, and the office next to him was his deputy. So their doors are real close to each other. They put that little desk in between the two doors so that they could sit in their office and both of them could watch as we're going through these file folders. And you're sitting in this little bitty school desk and this little bitty chair, like, I mean, like a, a kid, you know, <laughs> and the funny thing was the only thing I ever read in their reports was the information that Javier had written the previous day, you know, and I mean, they wouldn't name us by name, but they'd say, you know, the, the following information is based on a, a credible and reliable source of information. What happened to be a damn DE agent? You know, it was ridiculous. So they would get all your, all their, all their intel, pretty much all the evidence was your evidence. Oh, they got it all. They had access to everything going on in the embassy. When Los Pepes, we talked about Los Pepes uh, earlier in the show, bit of a vigilante group. Am I right? Yeah. It's and, a right wing vigilante group. Remember we talked about two, two guys, Pablo Escobar killed. Moncada and Galliano inside the prison. Pablo thought they stole money from him. The guys that they beat up at the prison. Yeah, he said, bring them in. And these two guys, Galliano Moncada, did not know that it was going to be that type of meeting. Pablo called them, says, hey, come on in. No security, because that's a large footprint. And we're just going to talk about what I've heard. There's some new bars in Medellin, some new restaurants. 
we'll have a couple of beers, have a good time, barbecue or something. Come on in, no security. So Don Berna, their head of security was not there. And the story is Don Berna and all the traffickers loved Galliano Moncada. For trafficker guys, they were like really good guys, you know, taking care of their runaway, good bosses. After they get killed, Don Berna organizes all the guys at work for Moncada Galliano. And these are hundreds of people, but they picked about 10 of the most violent Sicario type guys. And he got them together and he, and he basically says, we are going to go after Pablo Escobar using dirty tactics. And dirty tactics meant whatever we can do to kill Pablo Escobar's immediate family members. That was their goal, to kill the wife, the kids, the mom. They were able to kill 30 of Escobar's top friends, associates, attorneys, and whoever was a friend of Escobar. And then they would put a placard called P-E-P-E-S. And it meant people persecuted by Pablo Escobar. And these placards were getting a lot of media attention. You know, every morning you'd find three or four bodies with a placard. So Pablo knew it was Los Pepes that was coming uh, after them. And the main guy, as we know, is uh, Don Berna. They called him Don Berna. So that was that that kind of put a lot of pressure on Pablo and kind of choked him choked him into hiding quite a bit more, didn't it? Javier, you were talking about the frequency. Was that the frequency that was used to locate him and find him? And let me preface it because Steve was there. I was not there. So with that frequency, the famous Colonel Martinez, and Colonel Martinez is the leader of the search block. He's our boss. Mm. So once they started intercepting that frequency, Pablo and his son, Juan Pablo, would talk once a day, every day at five in the afternoon. And this is when they started intercepting him. So that frequency, and it just revived everybody's like, wow, we're close to him. So that meant a lot. Steve, you were part of the little hunt there on the day, weren't you? Yeah, it was. Um, and it was, and it's strange the circumstances led up to it because our ambassador, for some reason, got some information that. Uh, an informant in Miami by the name of street name of Navagante knew where Pablo was in Haiti. We knew that wasn't true. Um, so he calls Javier up cause I was up in Medellin that week. And he said, you know, I need you to go to Miami and talk to this guy. He's, he's not going to talk to anybody, but you, he specifically asked for you by name and, and Javier's trying to tell him bastard. That's not true. That's, <laughs> I mean, it, it might be true that he's asking for me, but he doesn't know where Pablo is. And he said, the guy's here in Columbia, he's not going to leave the country where he feels safe. This is his power base, you know, and he's wanted all over the world. He's the world's most wanted criminal. So the ambassador told Javier, he said, uh, listen, you can go to Miami and talk to this informant, or you can go to Miami and stay in the United States. Cause I'll kick you out of country, <laughs> you know, and the, and the ambassador is the leading American in foreign countries. He's, he's the president's representative president of the United States is representative. And he has that authority. So Javier gets on a plane, flies up to Miami. And I mean, won't you tell what happened? When got <laughs> yeah, <there>? real quick. <laughs> you know, here I am. I've been after Escobar since 88, right? And that last day, and Steve hit it right on the, the ambassador <laughs> ordered me. So I get to Miami. I, 
I get picked up by some agents and we have a location where Navigante is at. And I see Navigante, I get out of the car and he's on the phone and his, his facial expression, all of a sudden he, he, he drops the phone and says, Javier, not even a hello. They've just killed Pablo Escobar. <laughs> I remember I said, shit, you know, so I, I didn't even say nothing to them. I told you, hey, just take me back to the airport. And I get on the next flight coming back to uh, Colombia. And I always remember tons of news people, media people were on that flight. You know, famous people you see on the evening news were boarding that flight to Colombia. <laughs> anyway, back to you, like the media. <laughs> did, they, did they know that they were on the flight with you? Did they have any No, idea? no, they didn't know. No, wow. Can you imagine time, if yeah. they had? He, yeah. he wouldn't have got any peace whatsoever. <laughs> no, I know. Oh you know, my gosh. They, and that's that's kind of funny about that because it, you know, here is the world's yeah. leading expert on Pablo Escobar and Manny Cartel sitting on the plane with him. And they they're just looking at him like, yeah, he's just another somebody going to Columbia. Yeah, yeah. So back in Medellin, so I'm I'm standing in the room, and, and I want to point this out because there's a, a rumor out there about who really killed Pablo. Was it an American? You know, was it an American operator? Steve. Be honest. Wasn't me either. So, did, did you fire anything in his general direction? No, <laughs> you know, I, I uh, would like to take credit for it, but this is all about telling the truth, right? This is it. So, I'm I'm in the room with all the other Americans up there, and, and by other Americans, I mean not CA. They had their own room, and you know, Paul's hanging out there by himself. Uh, but I'm, we had the U.S. Army's Delta Force, and we had the U.S. Navy SEAL Team Six members with us up there the whole time for 18 months, and there were a couple other people from other Intel, U.S. Intel agencies in that room. But, you know, it was nice just to talk to somebody that was from the U.S. every once in a while and, and just kind of shooting the breeze with them. And, but I'm standing in the doorway, so I keep an eye on everything. And, and you got this quad area out there around where the, the colonel's offices is. It was like an L-shaped building. His office is up here on this corner, and where we were with the Americans was down on this end of the L. And then over here was the barracks, the officer's barracks, and that's where we stayed. And, and uh, so anyway, I'm talking to the Americans and all of a sudden I see the executive staff for Colonel Martinez rushing to his office. So I just told the gringos, I say, hey, I'm, something's going on. I'll go check it out. I'll be back. So I go over and, and I walk into the outer office and I stick my head in the door and Colonel Martinez sees me and he motions for me, come on in. And that was the cool relationship that Javier and I had with them. You know, we had built up a trust and respect with the Colonel that he would invite us into a situation like that. And he's on the right, he's on a handheld radio. And one of the Lieutenant colonels leans over to me and he says, we think we found Pablo, you know, they're getting ready to launch an operation. I mean, you got to understand that we've heard this before. It, it's still, we haven't heard this in a long time. So it's exciting, but same token in the back of your mind thinking, man, I hope this is not another wild goose chase. So there's, there's discussion back going back and forth and Colonel Martinez is telling the person on the other end of that radio, he's giving him instructions. What just so happens, the person on the other end of the radio is Lieutenant Hugo Martinez, Colonel Martinez's son. And this is all going to be very appropriate here in just a moment. We'll explain it to you. Colonel Martinez is telling the son, listen, secure the site, and the Dehean guys are out there. Well, it turns out that Lieutenant Martinez is the guy that actually located Pablo Escobar on December 2nd, 1993, using radio directional finding equipment. And the phone systems back then, they're not the modern systems like we have today. They were basically radio telephones. So Lieutenant Martinez had taught himself how to use this sophisticated equipment. And the government of France had donated a bunch of vans that have radio directional finding equipment in them. The principle of the use of this equipment is called triangulation. And that tells you that three vans would shoot a signal 
from different parts of the city and where the three signal lines come across, that's where the radio signals emanating from. Okay. But the margin of error was very large back then because the, the equipment wasn't advanced like it is today. So to refine that margin of error, you would have to send a, a ground troop in with a handheld antenna. And that's what Lieutenant Martinez did that day. And now if you see the, the reenactments or, you know, they show them in police uniforms and police cars, that's not true. They were in plain clothes. And the way you use this antenna is you have to ride down the street, hold it out the window of your car. Well, there's nothing unusual about that, is it? That's something you see every day. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> and so as Lieutenant Martinez is driving down the street, his little meter is telling him to look up to the left. And he looks up and he says, he's looking at Pablo Escobar. And he says that Pablo is looking at him. Well, now you, we've gone back and listened to the recordings and we've listened to the tape recordings of Pablo because he was on the phone talking to his son, Juan Pablo. And there was no break in Pablo's conversation. Like, listen, this is what I want. What the hell is that? I see somebody driving down the street, holding an antenna. There's what is what's going on. There's nothing that nothing to indicate that Pablo saw anything that looked suspicious to him. Although Lieutenant Martinez says he's looking right at me. So anyway, Colonel Martinez says, look, we're loading up the troops now, 600 men or personnel, which you don't do in a minute or two, you know, it takes a while to get the trucks out and get, get everybody mustered together and issue weapons and assignments and all that stuff. So he says, you know, secure the location. Do not let him get away. If you have to act, do what you got to do. Well, then the, the radio kind of goes quiet and we're all standing there. And, and I mean, you can cut the anticipation with a knife. Everybody's kind of hyped up and you're, you know, you're just really excited. You want to get out there and see if you can do anything to help. And finally, one of the majors from the Dahin unit comes up on the radio, says a few words, and he ends it with Viva Colombia, Pablo Escobar is dead. Well, then, you know, that's when the high-fiving and backslapping and all that starts in the, in the office. And um, Colonel Martinez is still issuing orders, you know, secure the scene, we're on the way. Well, now I've got to get back to a phone so I can call the embassy and report to my boss, our boss, Joe Toft, what happened. The Columbia National Police's telephone intercept room was right next or not the intercept room, the 800 number. That's what it was, right? AGP. Mm -hmm. 800 number. Yeah, it was in an office right next to the office that the Gringos had. So I went in there because there was always a phone available to us. And I'm calling the embassy and I can't get through. It's it's all these busy signals. So finally, I call the DEA admin office because nobody's going to call them except us. And, and I get through and one of our, our uh, assistants in there, uh, Angie, answers the phone. And I said, Angie, get Mr. Toff on the phone immediately. It's an emergency. Okay, okay, okay. So I wait a few minutes and it seems like forever. I mean, it seems like hours I'm waiting. Finally, Joe Toff picks up the phone. His first words are, they killed Pablo. <laughs> like, well, how the hell do you know? That's why I'm called to tell you. <laughs> and, and what we found out later was the head of the Columbia National Police, when Colonel Martinez called him to report what had happened, he immediately called Joe Toft rather than the president <laughs> of Columbia. First person he called yeah. was the DEA boss. And I say that because that shows you the working relationship we had between us and the Columbia National Police. Just a few weeks prior to that, so the ambassador is the number one person in the embassy, and his, his second in command is called a deputy chief of mission, a DCM. And like our ambassador was, was a retired Navy lieutenant commander. We loved him. I mean, he was a can-do guy. He'd hold your feet to the fire. You better do your job. As long as you were working, he had your back. Well, the DCM was a, a State Department employee. I'll say it like that. They're different. They're not tactical, so much operational like we were and like the ambassador was. 
And so in these two different country team meetings where all the different sections of the embassy come together once a week to report what they're doing, you know, the, I mean, the number one topic was Pablo Escobar. So Javier and I would always have to go to the country team meeting with Joe Toft and explain the latest of the investigative efforts and all that. But then you had to stick around and listen to the, the crop production estimates for the Colombian soybean or, I mean, stuff that you just don't care about <laughs> yeah. because you're thinking about all the stuff you need to get done. Well, at the end of these two meetings, the, the DCM told me to stay. And he said, I'm getting reports that you and Javier are leaving the compound in Medellin that you're going out on operations. Well, we weren't supposed to, and it was for our own safety. And all the gringos were under the same rules. Well, at the very beginning, Javier and I discussed this between ourselves, and we thought, you know, we can't do our job if we can't leave the base. So for 18 months, we left the base. We did operations almost every day. We're flying out on these Huey gunships and, and going on raids, and we're beating informants, and we're doing surveillance with the Colombian police and all this different stuff. And it is. It's, it's against embassy policy. It's not against the law. You know, so we kind of look at policy as suggestions, you know, and, and <laughs> so we went and did our job I and mean, we never broke any laws down there, but we did break policy. We'll be the first yeah. to admit that. And I think one of the biggest compliments we, we ever got was one of the police officers said, Javier, how come you and they called him Stick? They couldn't pronounce Steve. Stick was yeah. his nickname. He said, how come you and Stick are always with us? risking your lives, coming on an operation. What about those other gringos that never come with us? So <laughs> that to me was one of the highest compliments we ever got. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, the DCM told me both times. The first time he said, if, if you and Javier continue to, if you go out again, I'm going to kick you out of country. So, okay, gotcha boss. Second time he said, you thought I was kidding. Weren't you? And he said, this is your last warning. If you go out of the, out of the base up there against my orders, I will return you to the United States on the next day's American airlines flight. Your family will come up after, which is my wife. You know, well, we had had our first daughter by then. And, and he said, your household of goods will come whenever they get there. I said, got you, boss. So now mm -hmm. here I'm telling Joe Toff about, you know, Pablo's dead. And his, his first order is get your butt out there and make sure this is Pablo. Confirm that's Pablo Escobar. I said, Joe, you know, I'm not supposed to, according to the DCM. And he said, this direct order, I've got your back. Get out there. I said, you got it, boss. So I run back to the barracks and I grab my weapons and my cameras and stuff. And I come running out the entire search block is gone. They have loaded up 600 troops and left. The only people left are the guards on the gates and the fences. And we don't have cars up there. You know, we fly in on helicopters. I'm like, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? So, you know, you're running all these scenarios through your man, your head and lo and behold, here comes a Jeep driving back in the compound. It's Colonel Martinez and his protection detail. And he sees me standing there and I, I probably look like I got my thumb up my butt or something. He's like, stick, what are you doing? I said, Colonel, I need a ride. I, I was on the phone with, with my office. I need a ride out there. And he's like, get the Jeep, you know, you moron. <laughs> so I drove out to site with Colonel Martinez and his detail. So we get out there and, and, you know, we go into the, the row house ourselves, you know, I, I follow Colonel Martinez because everybody's bound down to him. He's like the man, mm -hmm. you know? And so if you stay on his coattails, you're going to get access to everything. We're going through all the rooms, taking pictures, and we make our way up to the third floor. And that's the window that Pablo jumped out of to the, the roof of the second floor row house behind it. All these row houses are attached. Well, down on the roof is Pablo's body with the Dehin guys, the guys that actually got the gun battle with Pablo. And so I yell at them and they all the stick stick and they're holding their guns up and they're shaking them. And, you know, I'm not sure if there was any rounds fired off. I don't think the Columbia. So they're like, they're like law enforcement as well. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. 
yeah, these are the good guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm snapping pictures up there, you know, of them and, and just having a good time. And then we come out of the house, we walk around the other side, we climb up a ladder onto the roof where Pablo's body is. And I'm taking photographs and that's where the picture was, you know, the Columbia police officers are wanting their picture taken with Pablo's body and I'm taking them and, and, you know, finally they're going to stick, stick, come over and get your picture made. So I go over and, you know, get my picture made. They're holding up Pablo and, uh, which kind of came back to bite me in the butt later, but it's kind of paid off here in the long run. Mm. And then, uh, uh, Colonel Polias, uh, one Lieutenant Colonel's is there and he's like, and I've got on this bright red polo shirt, you know, which I don't know why I wore a red shirt that day. I guess it was red shirt day. And, uh, he came over and he's like, listen, we're thinking about getting you back to the base. And I said, Colonel, I think it's a great idea. You know, the the press is starting to show up. We don't want gringos seen out here. This is something that you guys need to take credit for because you took care of business. And so I got a detail and they took me back to the base. And to my knowledge, nobody ever saw me except my sister. She saw me on CNN. And and just because she recognized me, you know, I'm, I'm darting through people trying not to be seen down there. So it worked out pretty good later. Um, you know, there's all these rumors flying around about Pablo wasn't really killed by the Colombian national police. He was killed by an American operator, a sniper who, you know, had a miraculous shot from a mile away or whatever it was and actually shot Pablo through the ear. Now I'll be the first to tell you, could those guys do that? I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Yes, they could. Did they do it? No doubt in my mind. No, they didn't. How do I know? Because I was talking to them when the operation started going down. We've been living with these guys for 18 months. We've become friends. When somebody's not around, you recognize that, you know, where's, where's Joe, where's Javier today? You know, that kind of thing. So uh, certainly not taking any credit whatsoever from them. The head of Delta force, uh, at that time was uh, general Jerry Boykin, who is still a good friend of mine. Uh, Jerry says in his book, and he says, I've, I've gone to speaking events where he's been and, and he saw me in the crowd. And he said, you know, people say that we killed Pablo Escobar. He said, that's absolutely not true. He was killed by the Colombian national police. And that's, we make a big deal about that because we want the world to know the Colombian national police took their country back from this piece of shit. You know, they did what they had to do. They suffered the sacrifices. There was more than a thousand police officers killed during the manhunt for Pablo Escobar. Nobody else deserves the credit more than them. Did we participate? Yes, we did. Did we kill Pablo Escobar? Was I on the roof that day? When Pablo was killed in Narcos, it shows I was. That's not true. I just told you I rode out to the site after Pablo's dead with Colonel Martinez. So that's what really happened that day. Didn't Juan Pablo come out and say that he committed suicide or something? Pablo committed suicide. <laughs> Wasn't there something to do with that? Yeah, and that's that's another BS story. When his son started that rumor about his dad said, oh, you know, this weapon carries 13 rounds. It's 12 for them and one for me. They'll never take me alive. Well, before I was a DEA agent, a federal agent, I was a local police officer. I've been trained in murder investigations. I've actually worked on some murder investigations on some suicides. I've been the lead investigator on several suicides. When you shoot a gun, there are little bits of gunpowder that come out of the barrel of that gun, you know, and the bullet will keep going for as long as it has velocity, as long as it has energy behind it. But those little pieces of gunpowder, they don't travel very far. And when they lose their energy, they just kind of fall to the ground. Well, if you commit suicide, the gun is close enough to you that those bits of gunpowder are going to hit your skin. Okay. With these powder burns on the skin. And even if you could hold a gun at arm's length out to the side and shoot yourself in the ear, which would be, you know, like a one in a bazillion shots, that's still close enough that you're going to have powder burns on the skin. 
Now you've probably seen the photographs of Pablo's body uh, on the internet. I took those pictures, you know, I mean, I don't release our photographs out. We use them for our business, you know, our speaking business, but people take pictures of our events and they post them online. Well, go back and look at those pictures and tell me if you see any powder burns on the side of Pablo Escobar's head, there aren't any. It's because he was killed by the Colombian national police. Plus the Colombian government conducted an autopsy. So people, you know, conspiracy theorists like to say, well, you know, they wanted to cover up the truth. Well, go look at the pictures yourself and you tell me what you see. That's just a rumor. And, and, you know, if I, if Pablo Escobar was my dad, I, I would probably want to change the legacy of my father, not to be the world's first narco terrorist, you know, the world's biggest cocaine trafficker, a mass murderer, a pedophile. So, but that's all, it's just speculation on his part. None of it's true. Mm. How was it when you guys got back to the office? You guys were heroes, weren't you? Well, it was a pretty good party, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. A lot yeah. of celebration. Yeah, the next day, well, you know, Javier flew back yeah. in from Miami on Friday, flew up, he came to the base on a gunship, a lot of high five to back slapping and, you know, congratulations. And then he and I flew back to Bogota. Uh, we landed at El Dorado Airport there and had to grab a taxi because none of the agents came out to meet us, <laughs> which was a little unusual. But when we got to the embassy, it was probably six o'clock in the evening. My wife and some other wives had planned a party and they had cases of beer and pizzas there in the embassy. And so we, you know, we had a good time until we ran out of booze there. And then we took off to the clubs and I think my wife and I got home probably about nine 30 the next morning on Saturday morning. It was an all nighter. It was a good party. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And now you guys, are, you mentioned your tour. You, can people get tickets to that? Have you got anything coming up? Well, unfortunately COVID has really killed our business. The only things that we're doing right now, it's mostly virtual uh, business conferences, which are private events. We haven't done anything public now for what over two years, JP. Yeah, yeah correct. So, but on our website, which is deanarcos.com, there's a calendar on there that, you know, our, the guy that runs our website for us, he keeps a, an active calendar of when and where we'll be around the world. We had hoped to do a third UK tour last year. Oh, we love coming to the UK, man. It's beautiful. We love going to Australia and New Zealand. Everybody is so nice. They treat us really well. But right now, until COVID calms down, mm. I guess we'll keep doing yeah. Yeah. not very much. Right. <laughs> we were averaging about 75 shows a year. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I saw Javier more than I saw my wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys get ever, ever get asked the question about the war on drugs? I'm sure you do about, you know, obviously you guys did an amazing job and that's why, you know, you they made a netflix series about it as well and you know that's why you guys are treated like heroes but do you guys get ever get asked about asked about the war on drugs and whether or not it's either winnable or i guess like what do you guys feel like what you did has made a difference to the war on drugs or winning the war on drugs i guess i'm asking my experience the war on drugs what happened after we took down pablo escobar cali cartel took it over right Cali cartel went after them. We took them down in the North Valley. Look at the Mexico. Chapo was taken down. What happened? Now there's other cartels. As long as there's money to be made, people are going to take their chances of uh, sending dope. The, first of all, the, the, the term war on drugs is probably the biggest misnomer the government's ever come up with, our government. I mean, here we are going after the world's first narco-terrorist, the world's most wanted criminal, the world's biggest cocaine manufacturing distributor. And what did we send Two guys? 
that's not a war. <laughs> that's a joke, right? Yeah. And, and then we always challenge our offices, our, our audiences, especially in the United States. Can you go out on just about any street corner in the United States right today and buy cocaine? And we know the answer that's true. Yes, you can. Now, did we have a positive impact by taking out Pablo Escobar? We did lasted maybe two weeks because just like Javier said, then Cali stepped up, took them out. Then the North Valley cartel steps up, take them out. Then Don Berna steps up and it just keeps going. And, you know, today Columbia's still the leading producer of, of cocaine in the world. You can't ignore this. So here in the United States, we are the leading consumer country in the world of illegal narcotics, not a reputation we're proud of, not at all, but it's the truth. So we still need the enforcement effort and, and, uh, please don't edit this out. I am not taken away from anything from law enforcement. You still need the brave men and women, in law enforcement who are willing to go out there and put themselves between us, you know, because I mean, our retirees were has-beens now, you know, we still need those brave men and women who are willing to risk their lives to protect all of us and God bless them for everything they do. We love them to death. The, the law enforcement culture is kind of the same all around the world. We've got cop friends all over the world, but it comes down to the, a, a law of a basic law of economics, supply versus demand. As long as there's a demand for the narcotics, there are criminals out there or people out there that will provide the supply. They don't care if it's legitimate or illegal, right? So we're big proponents of addressing the demand problem. Uh, here in the United States, we think education, we should focus more on education, getting the word out to from children at the, at the youngest age you know, about the evils of narcotics. I know I'm going to catch a lot of crap comments over the statements that we're making right now. Legalization is not the answer. You're just making it easier for people to get access to things that will destroy their lives. And that's a whole different topic that we typically don't talk about just because it kind of leads into an argument rather than a discussion. It's a big rabbit hole. It is. Yeah. Here's an example. So I have five granddaughters. I live in, in Florida now. I'm on a lake. And we've got an alligator that comes over to visit us about once a week. He'll come up on the, our backyard slopes down pretty good. And he'll come up and sign himself. He was out here yesterday, just laying in the backyard. Well, my four-year-old granddaughter, well, she's just turned five. I got to tell her she's a five-year-old now. She came over the first time. We've only been here a few months. And when I saw, we call him Big Al. So when we saw Big Al out there, I took her outside to show her an alligator. And, and you know, I wanted to tell her the dangers. And, and you know how kids are. They're so interested. She's like, Big Al you ever come up here, I'll come down there and smack you on the head. And, you know, and just being a kid. And I said, come here, little girl, let me tell you. And I told her, I said, if, if big Al ever gets a hold of you, my children, my grandchildren call me pops. I said, pops can't save you. I'll jump in and try, but pops cannot save you. And it within two seconds, she's up in my arms. But the point is I got the message across. I wanted her to know is you stay the hell away from alligators. They're not pets. They're not your friends. You know, that was the point. So if I have to do that with them about narcotics, I'll guarantee you I'm going to do it because I don't want them getting involved. I've got close family members that are opioid addicts. You know, it's not something I'm proud of, but it's the truth. Is education the only answer? No. People have to accept responsibility for their own actions. I'm, I sound like a father when I'm saying this, but I don't care. It's for every action you take, there are consequences, good consequences and bad consequences. If you use illegal narcotics and become addicted, that's a bad comp consequence but it's a conscious decision you made. So I, I'm a big proponent of, of accepting responsibility for your own actions. You know, Harry and I both wish we had a, a, just a simple answer that we could provide the world that would stop the problem with narcotics, but there is no simple answer. 
maybe we're off base hundred percent. I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. I wish we did. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that is an easy answer, but you know, if you're listening to this and you want to hear more from Steve and Javier, you've got your own podcast now, don't you as well? We do. It's uh, we call it game of crimes and thank you for mentioning it. It's, it's a weekly true crime podcast. We call it long form just simply because we bring guests on just like Andy's doing with us. And we give them as much time as they need to tell the story. We usually focus on one specific uh, event that they participated in. Our, you know, our interviews could last three or four hours. Wow. Uh, it's been incredibly successful, much more than we ever dreamt it would be. I mean, just some of our guests on there, like this week, we interviewed Jay Dobbins, who was an ATF agent who infiltrated and actually became a patch member of Hell's Angels, the only law enforcement officer to ever do that. Ed Davis, who was the commissioner of the Boston police on when the Boston Marathon bombing occurred. We've had the former administrator of DEA. We even bring on a few bad guys. If you remember the movie Blow with Johnny Depp. Yeah. He portrayed a guy named George Young. We had George on as an interview. And and I mean, just a couple things that he admitted to that he's never admitted to before. He was involved in, he says, less than five murders in his criminal career. Never admitted to that. He told us about how General Noriega uh, nationalized his bank account. He lost, I think it was $63 million from drug trafficking. Uh, he admits to working for the CIA down in Panama, which wow. nobody had ever heard that before. So a lot of nice revelations, but you know, we want people to tell the story just like you're doing. You're having the people on that actually live the events to tell the story versus, you know, somebody read an article or a book and they're going to give you their opinion. So Great. Well, I have to give it a little bit more of a listen. And of course, your book is out now, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. I got mine off Amazon, but you can get it off eBay as well, can't you, Steve? Right. So we, we offer autographed and personalized copies on our website, but we can only ship those in the U.S., but we do go uh, make them available through eBay, which um, that way we can ship international. It costs a little bit more, but that's the only place you're going to get autographed and personalized copies. Until you come over and do another tour, COVID pending. Can't wait. Yep, we're ready. Brilliant. Looking forward to it. We'll, catch, we'll have to catch up for a beer when you get here. Thanks again, guys. And uh, thank okay. you very much for listening. Make sure you leave us a review and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts on.